The Seahawks invested a lot of draft picks and free agent money trying to shore up their defense. How do things look on that side of the ball through the 2025 season? Rob Rang and I'll be digging in on a three-year plan for the Seahawks on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks. Your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be rejoined by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang, and a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Only two OTAs left for the Seahawks, and they're just the passing clinics, mostly young players. They're doing some canoeing out on Lake Washington as well. So we have reached that stage of the offseason, and that means it's on to training camp. We're going to be continuing our series, checking out the three-year plan, the three-year outlook for the Seahawks. We're going to shift to the defensive side of the football and then we're going to continue our 90 player countdown we kicked it off yesterday we'll have numbers 85 through 81 today some really fun players including an xfl all first team selection staying in the pacific northwest so some fun players that we'll be looking at without further ado let's get started now for your lead story here on our tuesday edition of locked on seahawks John Schneider and the front office for the Seahawks, like every other front office out there, they have to keep an eye on the present, and they also have to keep an other eye on the future when they're making their roster decisions. And I was able to start diving onto this, Rob, yesterday, looking at offense. Today, though, we're going to shift to the side of the football where the Seahawks had more pressing questions going into the offseason, and that obviously was on defense. They struggled to defend the run. The pass rush was inconsistent. The secondary was good for the most part, but there were some hiccups in there as well for the back part of the defense, and they had some injuries back there. From a three-year perspective, though, thinking big picture here, where do you think the Seahawks, based on what they've done this offseason, have helped themselves the most, not just this year, but looking at the next couple seasons after? Well, one of the reasons why I was absolutely shocked, Corbin, when the Seahawks made that selection of Devin Witherspoon, number five overall selection, was uh, that cornerback, because I did view that as a position that the Seahawks were relatively strong already. Uh, Of course, it's always fun when you take a position of strength and make it a position that is arguably the best in all of the NFL. And and so that's the position that I would have to uh, highlight First, I think you could also make an argument at the safety position, just considering what safety could be um, if you have the full gamut of Quandre Diggs as that center fielder, Jamal Adams be coming up and, and being kind of that pass rushing linebacker hybrid type of players. And of course, the free agent addition of Julian Love being able to kind of make it all work together. So really, the the, the, the easy answer here, Corbin, is I really think that the, the strength of the Seattle's defense is absolutely in the secondary, just just like it was when the Legion of Boom helped the Seahawks obviously bring a Lombardi trophy to Seattle. Those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can see the three-year depth chart on defense for the Seahawks. And there's a lot of green, which is good. That means that the Seahawks have projected starters on the roster for the next two or three seasons. But there are a couple of glaring red spots as well, particularly a linebacker where 
they don't have a projected starter under contract after the 2023 season. They also at the punter position, Michael Dixon's only got two years left on his contract. I think when you look from a big picture perspective, though, I think that, you know, and we'll talk some more about this as the show progresses, the defensive line is still an area of concern or at least an area of question for the Seahawks with all the moving parts. But they did give themselves some continuity there, which quite frankly, there hasn't been much of that the last couple of years. They've kind of been mixing and matching their three techs, their defensive tackles, bringing in guys like Quentin Jefferson for second stints, bringing Al Woods back in for a second stint. They haven't necessarily had core guys that they've retained in that interior defensive line. They let Jaron Reed go. Now Jaron Reed's back. But Draymond Jones getting that big three-year contract worth over $50 million. Maybe you can look at the amount of money and say, hey, we might have overreached a little bit price-wise. But this is a guy that has consistently gotten after quarterbacks. He's still in his mid-20s, still has room to get better than what he has been at this point. And now you have under contract for the next three years. So you can look at some other parts of that defensive line, and we'll obviously get to that later. But you can question those things at the same time. You can look at Draymond Jones signing and say, hey, we just invested big money here in a guy that can be a cornerstone for our defense. And they just haven't had that kind of player in the interior defensive line the last four or five years. They just haven't made those kind of investments or they haven't been able to get young guys developed enough to be that. So that's really what jumps out to me more than anything is that you do have players like Julian Love even. You got him on a two-year deal. It wasn't one of those one-year flyers. So it does give you more flexibility in 2024 having him on the roster. It feels like there's a lot more clarity, at least in terms of continuity, than what there was going into this offseason where there really wasn't much away from maybe a handful of positions. Offense was much more clear-cut going into the offseason. So I do think the Seahawks, and we'll have more time to expand on this, but it does feel like they have been able to fill some of those gaps, not just getting one-year stop gaps like they've relied on a lot of the time the last four or five seasons. They were able to get some guys that may potentially be long-term answers or players like Draymond Jones where you better be a long-term answer with the money that we're paying you. Yeah, exactly. And to me, it reminds me a little bit of what Seattle did a year ago. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people out there who were kind of surprised, maybe a little bit concerned when, when Seattle signed Uchenna Nuosu. I mean, after all, the, the Chargers had basically replaced him, um, you know, with Khalil Mack and obviously uh, previously with, with Joey Bosa there. Um, and yet it was one of the moves that I really celebrated. I really thought that Uchenna Nuosu was a player that was kind of on the upswing and that you wanted to sign him, not just to that one-year proof it deal but to a two or or, or three-year contract because i personally thought that he had already demonstrated starting level ability but also had upside to him i mentioned it because to me it's very similar with draymond jones very similar with uh julian love as well in that i see players that are already good but I still believe they could have even higher upside. So I, I applaud the Seahawks, frankly, for, for taking a little bit more of a long-term approach with these particular free agents, as opposed to some of the other free agents out there that maybe are a little bit more of a, a one-year gamble. Let's see what you can do. So to me, that that really is, again, one of the areas in which I was excited about the, the additions that Seattle made in, during the offseason, especially with Draymond Jones. Obviously, their splashiest player from just the number of dollars that the Seahawks gave him. But 
Of course, the free agent addition on the defensive side of the ball that most Seahawks fans are the most excited about is just the return of number 54, Bobby Wagner, in the middle. Yeah. And for anybody who was just watching the, the YouTube, uh, you know, watching on YouTube, and as you often say, Corbin, thank you so much to all of those who are watching on YouTube. But if you're not, the one area of red that is just glaring uh, for the YouTube watchers and those of you who are not watching, I will just mention it, that we are, are only listing right now two linebackers, uh, Bobby Wagner and Jordan Brooks. Both of those players are under, you know, basically one year deals at this point. Jordan Brooks coming in the final year of his rookie deal. Bobby Wagner brought back on a one year deal. There might be some out there saying, hey, what about Devin Bush? Uh, he's only on a one year deal. So, so again, I mean, linebacker position long-term is a position of concern. And, and that's one that I think th that the Seahawks very much have to be watching, not only the, the their current players, including some of those young players currently on the roster, but that has to be something that they are looking and paying great deal of attention to with the 2024 NFL draft prep already starting uh, with scouts kind of starting to kind of congregate, starting to kind of buzz a little bit about some of the prospects that might be available next spring. As we've talked about time and time again in this podcast, there was a long run there for John Schneider where the Seahawks were signing a lot of 30-plus-year-old players to one-year contracts. And when we were looking at these three-year outlook depth charts, there was red everywhere because there was just not much long-term planning that was put into those rosters. It was win-now Let's get these one-year guys that maybe don't have a ton left in the tank, but they can help us compete for championships. This is just a different time for the Seahawks, and seeing them aggressively spend free agent dollars on players, like you mentioned, that are in their mid-20s that still have room to get better and are in the prime of their careers, it's a really nice changeup that not only reflected on the field last year, they're hoping reflects this year, but you can see it just looking at the depth chart that, hey, we have these guys locked up for multiple seasons. We can really build something now, not just be a playoff team, but – make ourselves contenders with some of these guys as foundational pieces. And so that makes it exciting. We're going to dig even deeper on this subject, looking at three-year outlooks at specific position groups, which areas the Seahawks are best set up through 2025, where they have the most immediate concerns, and maybe a position group that's truly wait and see. Looking forward to diving into that up next year on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. This episode is brought to you by FanDuel as the NFL season quickly approaches. Make sure to rush over to FanDuel because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from season awards to week one props to exact regular season win totals in the NFL. Even with training camp still more than a month away, I'm excited to dig into season props such as NFL MVP, Geno Smith, anyone, Rookie of the Year, maybe Jackson Smith and Jigba. Regardless of what prop you choose, you'll get paid instantly if you win. There's no better place to bet on all the upcoming football action than America's number one sports book. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get a no sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NFL. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined once again by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first lesson five days a week. For our everydayers, you will not want to miss our Wednesday episode. Dan Viennes of the Seahawks Forever podcast going to be joining in to dish out his deep sleepers to watch heading into training camp, Geno Smith's ceiling, and much more. Going to be a really exciting episode. You won't want to miss it. 
Let's continue, Rob, to break down this three-year outlook on defense for the Seahawks. We kind of took that big picture, like we always do, that macro perspective. Let's just look at the depth chart as a whole. And now we get a chance to get into the specifics and talk about which position groups the Seahawks look like they're set at for the next three years, where the most immediate concerns come into play, and maybe a position or two that is kind of in that middle ground. Not sure if it's a concern or if this is going to be a strength. We have to wait and see. Let's start with the positives. And I know that you already mentioned Devin Witherspoon, so I'm sure that is where you are going to go first here. And that would be my number one strength for this defense too for a number of different reasons long-term. Yeah, I, again, I think that's just the fact that the Seattle went with Devin Witherspoon number five overall, and then just watching him on tape, you and I both viewed him as a absolute top 10 lock in, in this last draft, and of course, Seattle made him the number five overall selection. You just see the size, you see the physicality, you see the speed, you see the ball skills, you, you see the competitiveness, you see just the pure athletic ability that kind of goes back to his days as a high school basketball player, and that was one the reasons why that the the Florida native wound up at the University of Illinois in the first place, but anybody who has watched his tape sees what a just a very well rounded and highly competitive player that he is, and I think that that's the mindset that we have to focus in on here for just a moment because anybody who has watched the Seahawks a year ago and just kind of was overjoyed, I presume, with the way that Tariq Woolen played as a fifth round pick a year ago, considering how darn good Tariq Woolen was. And it was critical that Seattle had to find a guy who had the right mentality to play opposite Tariq Woolen. And uh, I would argue that they had a pretty solid veteran, Mike Jackson, who did exactly that a year ago. But again, that, that's kind of more of a journeyman NFL player rather than an absolute superstar that the Seahawks clearly believe that Devin Witherspoon can be. So again, I think that that I personally thought that cornerback was one of Seattle's areas of strength, even entering the draft. But I think it's really fun when you have an area of strength that you make absolutely elite. And that's what I do expect Seattle's cornerback play specifically to be. And I'm really encouraged by Seattle's talent at the safety position as well. So as I mentioned a couple of moments ago, from the macro perspective, I think you really have to focus in on Seattle's secondary as their greatest strength. The closer you get to the line of scrimmage, the more I start to get a little bit more trouble. Yeah, that's something we're going to have time to talk about here in a second. But I'm glad that you mentioned Mike Jackson because he played pretty darn well in 17 starts last year. And Pete Carroll said that he had the best camp of anybody this offseason. Borderline dominant, if you can be dominant in OTAs and minicamp. He was able to. He was getting his hands on the football for pass breakups, picked off Geno Smith in the end zone. That video has been flying around on social media. You've got Trey Brown, who showed he could start a couple years ago before he got hurt. Kobe Bryant played well last year. I mean, this is a team that doesn't just have star power at the top. They've got five starter caliber players at this position and a number of them have three years remaining on their contract at day three costs. So they're affordable too. The only expensive player that you have here right now is Witherspoon being the top five pick. And that's still, you know, $5 million cap hit this year. It's not like he's being paid shut down quarter top money at this point. So that's why this is the biggest long-term strength to me is it's affordable. You've got the star power and you've also got 
starters behind those guys that would start for a lot of teams and they won't start for this football team with the addition of Devin Witherspoon. It's a good problem to have. As far as the other group that I view as a long-term, and I know you and I talked about this before the show, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts because I don't think you completely agree with me on this, but edge and outside linebacker, I think from a long-term perspective, I'm actually more excited about than short-term. Uchenuosu is going to be a free agent. That's the key here. Can you get him re-signed? But you've got untapped potential and upside with this group. Daryl Taylor, Boy Mafe, Derek Hall. We're talking players that are all 25, 26 years old or younger. They're still very young players that are under club control. Mafe and Hall, second round picks, not expensive guys to have under contract the next three years. And then you've got the unknown variables. And I think this is why I have this group as one of my positives here. Tyreek Smith is technically going to be a rookie this year. He missed his first season of the league. They loved what they saw in his limited action in practice last year before he got put on injured reserve. They've been talking him up this offseason as well, and you're going to get Alton Robinson back at some point. There's still two guys there that the organization is high on that we don't even know if we can count on them to fit into this. If they do end up fitting into this rotation, you could have six very solid pass rushers working off the edge for this team and it could be a strength and again almost all these guys are under contract for at least the next two years if not the next three so I think from a long-term perspective that the edge position is actually a spot the Seahawks are in pretty good shape could be I mean that's the problem it's like you said I mean you're 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 very intrigued about the long-term potential of the Seahawks pass rush not quite as sure about the short-term potential. And that's my concern as well. If I was going to push back at all on this, I think that the edge rush edge rushers for the Seahawks could be as good as their cornerback class. And by that, I mean, it could be right there among the NFL's absolute best. I also think that there's a possibility that they've got a whole bunch of guys that are kind of more journeyman edge rushers rather than those dominant, those number one guys. I've used that baseball reference. You have to have your ace. You have to have your number one guy. I think there's a possibility Chen Nuoso gets 10 sacks. I think there's a po- in this upcoming season. I think there's a possibility Daryl Taylor gets 10 sacks. I think that Derek Hall or uh, you know, Tyreek Smith, is, as you mentioned, Boye Mata, they have that type of potential. I'm not willing to put my job on the line. Uh, you know, the proverbial gun to your head, which I don't love that expression, but still my point is I'm not sure there's any one of Seattle's pass rushers that I would put my name on the line and say, this guy is guaranteed to be an eight and a half, nine, 10 sack guy next year. I think Chernuosu is going to be able to do that. He definitely showed that last year. I think Daryl Taylor is going to be able to take the potential that he has flashed various times over the last couple of seasons. And definitely last year, second half of the season, he got hot. And I am hopeful for the Seahawks, for Daryl Taylor, that he is going to be able to continue. I just don't know for sure. And that to me is the biggest the biggest kind of question mark that I would say about that edge rusher class. But I 100% agree with you that I love their potential. I just worry about the production. I want to see the proof is in the pudding, as I often say. And I think that the Seahawks have to be able to demonstrate that they have six good pass rushers, very good potentially, rather than six average guys that we are just being led to believe because of the high draft picks, the salary cap uh, dollars that Seattle, you know, kind of, uh, provided China Nuosu that they have to be able to live up to those high draft picks and that contract. If, if Seattle is going to be able to, to take that next step, go from being a playoff contender, obviously well, you know, got the wild card this past season, but now the expectation is that they're going to be a playoff team. Can they do that? 
in this upcoming season? That to me is going to be one of the most fascinating questions on the defensive side of the ball. You're not as high on the outlook for the edge rushers. You mentioned the safety group being a positive. So I'm going to dish it back to you from mm -hmm. a long-term perspective. I love the talent that the Seahawks have at safety, but this is a different, every position has a different cup of tea. And for me, I look at the crippling cap hits coming up next year. You've got Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams carrying cap hits north of $20 million in 2024. You've got the durability, the age concerns. Adams has missed more than 20 games the last two seasons. Diggs is going to be 31 next year. And then there's the lack of club control. Adams and Jarek Reed II, their sixth-round pick. Rob, those are the only two guys that are under contract through the 2024 or 2025 season. Even Julian Love's going to be free agent after 2024. So I don't see as much club control there. I see these bloated contracts in the case of Adams. Can he play to that level coming back from injury? Maybe that changes this discussion. But I have long-term concerns. If everybody is healthy this year, I think that could maybe be the best position group on the entire football team, the safety position. There's some big what-ifs there, though. And I just look in 2024, 2025, and – you know, if Jarek Reed the second ends up hitting, this becomes a much different conversation. But it just seems like there are going to be a lot of question marks beyond this year. And most of them probably are going to be surrounding number 33, depending how this season plays out. So uh, for me, the safety position, I'm not near as high on as what you are long term, even though I like the talent they have at that position. I think one thing that we can agree on, though, because this has maybe been the most we've disagreed on a segment in a long time. I think the one thing that we can agree on at least from a perspective here, is that the defensive line, the interior defensive sure. line, that is truly a wait-and-see proposition because there's reasons to be excited long-term and there's also reasons to go, whoa, wait a second. I'm not sure what they're doing here with this interior defensive line. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I really think that long-term and short-term defensive tackle, nose guard, whatever you want to call it, those interior defensive linemen, the big guys, uh, you know, we're taking a macro approach and – I think that, uh, that that Seattle has, you know, still has some work to do at that position, and I think that it's they they feel the same way. Uh, I think that the the number of players that they've signed since the draft indicates their their concern um, in, in terms of being able to slow the run. But I'll, I'll tell you that one of the things I'm most excited about, and we already kind of talked about, uh, you know, Draymond Jones. I love the bringing back Jaron Reed. I think that it does add an element of physicality and toughness and positional versatility and just experience that I think that the Seahawks needed. We, we talked before about how much I think Seattle may miss like a guy like a Al Woods or a guy like a Puna Ford. I think that Jaron Reed does solve some of those issues. And then I, I love Cameron Young. I mean, he was one of the, play, the Seahawks that as a rookie, I projected Seattle to select because I just really thought that he was kind of the perfect fit for them in a lot of different ways, kind of that blue collar guy. But at the same time, again, I just think that the asking a rookie to come in and play at that nose guard position, as I think the Seahawks are going to ask Young to do, is a lot to ask. And especially considering just the, the level of success of the running games, again, that I think that Seattle has to be able to uh, defend if they want to move up in that playoff hierarchy. If, if you were going to be able to get by the San Francisco 49ers, the Philadelphia Eagles, you really have to be able to play really sound defense. I'm not so sure that Seattle has the big boys in the middle to be able to do that just yet. 
Yeah, that's the real question is the nose guard, <clears throat> nose tackle position. Mm-hmm. What is the long-term and short-term prognosis at that position? If you hit on Cameron Young, then that changes things. But Brian Monet, he's under contract for the next couple of years, but what's he going to look like whenever he gets back from this ACL injury that he had surgery to repair? And, you know, if you've got Miles Adams playing some nose tackle at under 300 pounds, that's probably not the ideal situation. So you look at depth, you look at the nose uh, nose tackle position, and there are concerns there. But then you've got Draymond Jones under contract for three years, Jaron Reed for two years. I think Mike Morris has a chance to be a day three steal for them playing inside as well. You've got intriguing pieces to build around, and there's continuity, as I mentioned earlier, that they really haven't had in the interior defensive line. So that truly is a wait and see across that defensive line. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined as always by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. For our everydayers out there, you'll want to listen to tomorrow. Dan Viennes of the Seahawks Forever podcast will be joining us to discuss his deep sleeper candidates. And we'll also be looking at Geno Smith's ceiling and much more. Going to be a really exciting episode that you will not want to miss Let's continue our 90-man countdown. Rob, this will be the first time that you get to be involved in this. I kick things off on our Monday show with numbers 90 through 86. We get 85 through 81. You and I are going to rotate some of these players, maybe get to talk about uh, some of these guys, both of us getting to chime in. But this is truly going to be a chance for us to talk about the ones that we're really excited about. And so let's start with number 85 here and i know this is a player he has one trait that always pops off the film or in the case pops off the track that teams are really enamored by and that is benji franklin who actually played in the preseason for the jacksonville jaguars last year yeah this is a a cornerback who as you mentioned played with the jacksonville jaguars uh actually spent a little bit of time with the green bay packers as well played his college ball at Tarleton State, not not a big time college program, but they've actually produced a fair number, <coughs> excuse me, of NFL prospects over the years. And and this guy was absolutely dominant at, at Tarleton State. And, and so that to me is one of the things that I'm most intrigued by, is that uh, you know just the, the playmaking ability that he has over his final three seasons at Tarleton State. This kid selected or intercepted eight passes had 27 passes broken up, had a couple of block kicks. Uh, he was absolutely spectacular on special teams. He is a 4-3-3 guy. You mentioned the, the straight line speed. Uh, absolutely unbelievable athlete. I don't know that he has the physicality that, 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 that you need to have at the NFL level, but I think that he realizes now that he's had his two tours in the NFL, as we mentioned before, Jacksonville and Green Bay. I like the way that he fits into Seattle's system. I like the pure athletic ability. And again, I, I think that he rec- recognizes that if he is going to be able to play in the NFL, then he's going to have to be more physical against the run. That was the biggest concern I had about him. He's a 180-pound player, Corbin. And we know that Seattle just absolutely requires physicality at the cornerback position. If he can demonstrate that, his ability on special teams, his straight line speed, his ball skills. He doesn't have those 32-inch arms and some of the other traits that Seahawks fans have grown accustomed to with all the Seattle's corners. But he does have playmaking ability and straight line speed. And those two attributes are enough to get you in the NFL. And so I'm really excited to to see what he is going to be able to show here during training camp. Let's give this podcast some Pacific Northwest flavor, shall we? Coming in at number 84, I call him the jitterbug, and we've used that term for a few other guys, but 
watching Oregon State's film, and Tyjon Lindsay is the textbook definition of a jitterbug, and he's 5'8", 172 pounds, soaking wet. This guy is as he's as tiny as you're going to find for receivers. I actually see a little bit of Jakeem Grant, although he doesn't have the kick and punt return experience. I see a similar body style, similar quickness. He tested really well. And this is not a guy that is coming into the league without any foundation as a receiver, Rob. He had 30 catches for over 300 yards and a couple of touchdowns. He also had a rushing touchdown last year. So this is a guy that has a little bit about that multifaceted gadget to him where you can run the ball with him a little bit. You can move him in motion. You can run jet sweep fakes. You can do tossback screens to him. There's a lot of different things. But if Lindsey is going to have any chance to make this team again, he did not return kicks and punts very often at Oregon State. They didn't ask him to do that. But at that size, he's a really good athlete with elite quickness. If you want to make a run at a roster spot for this football team, you got to show Pete Carroll and Larry Izzo and company that you can return kicks and punts. If he is able to do that, then maybe this is a guy that we talk about deep into training camp, maybe pushing for a roster spot. If that is not something that develops, though, it's going to be pretty darn hard for him to be able to make this team, especially with the receiving talent they have at his size and not being a guy that was overly productive for the Beavers. Speaking of productivity, and I know that this is a player that you've been chomping the bit to talk about. In fact, you mentioned him earlier in the show. First team all XFL selection for the Seattle Sea Dragons. And he gets to stay in Seattle. He's recovering from knee surgery. But from what I've been told, he's got a good chance to be back early in training camp for the Seahawks. And Austin Fileu has a chance to maybe fit into that nose tackle battle behind Cameron Young once uh, the action starts up in August. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of fun. We're, we're transitioning from, from Oregon State with Ty John Lindsay, the wide receiver, to the University of Oregon, Austin Fileu, the, the big defensive tackle. And as you mentioned, Corbin, he was uh, you know, a, a very productive player for the, the Sea Dragons. Uh, you know, it was um it, it was interesting to watch Seattle go that route. Uh, you know, because Filu is a player that I watched the University of Oregon. I, I mean, he was a starter going back to his freshman year, but it wasn't until his senior season, the last you know five six games of the year, where he really became a dominant player. Um, and I, I was surprised, frankly, when he wound up not going, not getting drafted, um, but uh, did spend some time with the Dallas Cowboys. Actually, had a game appearance a year ago, um, and then again went to the Sea Dragons. He's a little bit undersized, considering the way that Seattle. I think that most of us are kind of assuming that Seattle might be. Looking Looking along that defensive line, 6'3", 295 pounds, so 300 pounds roughly. But again, not that big 330-pound space eater that I think a lot of Seahawks fans right now might be clamoring for. But this is a guy who does have some quickness to him, does coordinate his hands and his legs very well to be able to create some pressure, and he's powerful. I think that he is still just kind of scratching the surface of his potential. So, um, you know, the the Sea Dragons are, uh, you know, their top scout is Randy Mueller, who was in the NFL with the Seahawks and elsewhere um, for a long, long time. Randy Mueller helped create one heck of a roster um, for the, the Sea Dragons. I uh, saw Randy Mueller actually during the Seahawks minicamp. I think he was watching Austin Fayulu, and I understand why, because I think that we might be seeing a player that went from the Sea Dragons, now going to the Seahawks, who is going to be able to kind of resurrect uh, a, a pretty promising NFL career. For better or worse, this next player in our countdown coming into number 82 
is going to conjure up some memories of Tom Cable. But, you know, maybe let's give you a better memory. It also gives memories of George Fant, who played a lot of good snaps for the Seattle Seahawks as a sixth offensive lineman. And that would be Kendall Randolph, who played for the Alabama Crimson Tide. And what's interesting about Randolph is that he actually was a tight end for most of his college career. And so we're talking a 285 to 295 pound tight end. He was a pure blocking tight end. He didn't have any catches. He doesn't have any trip ups short of the first down marker like George Fant did in that game against the Minnesota Vikings a few years back. So he hasn't had to worry about that, but he's gotten a lot of snaps playing for Nick Saban's offense as a tight end. He's played a handful of snaps as a tackle as well. So this guy is clearly going to be a project because he hasn't played a lot of snaps along the offensive line, but he's played the tight end position. He was a four-star recruit. I mean, most of the guys that go to Alabama, they've got four and five-star labels. So he's got the pedigree, a guy that has been touted for his work ethic as well. This is a player I don't think makes this football team, but as a practice squad candidate, especially with Stone Forsythe only having two years left on his rookie deal, Jake Curhan's going to be a restricted free agent in a year. This gives the Seahawks a chance to develop a player who does have athletic traits. He has ideal size. You add another 10 pounds to him where he could be a swing tackle in the NFL and potentially be on this roster in 2024. He also gets after if you watch the film. This guy's got some physicality to him, which is why yes. Alabama ran a lot of six offensive line sets where they had this extra tight end in the lineup helping out. So get some George Fant vibes there. He's further along than George Fant because he's actually played a lot more playing the SEC for Alabama, but still not a lot of snaps as an offensive lineman necessarily. So there is going to be a bit of a learning curve here. And real quick to cap off our second segment here of 90 player countdown. Let's talk about a player. I know that you and I both want to get some thoughts in here and that would be Ty Okada, who played at Montana State. And this guy is the textbook definition of a player who plays with his hair on fire. I, I've been watching Montana State. I've, I've looked at a couple games, and there's been a few injuries sprinkled in there. But you want to talk about a guy that flies to the football and gets his hands on the football a lot? For an undrafted rookie, uh, Okada's got some really fun film. He, he really does. Uh, you know, you mentioned before the Alabama player and Kendall Randolph, who came in as a four-star recruit. Uh, Ty Okada was, you know, a guy that basically kind of fell under the radar because he played his high school ball at quarterback uh, in the state of Minnesota. And to wind up going to Montana State, where he made that transition to the defensive side of the ball last couple of years, he has primarily played safety and nickelback, was not invited to the combine, Corbin, but at his pro day ran in the four fours, um, really showed off his explosiveness in the uh, in, in the leaping drills and his change of direction. Um, he is a very productive player in terms of special teams um, and has some ball skills to him as well. And, and he is more of that kind of classic Seahawk size at, at 5'11", 200 pounds with, with good, good arm length. And again, really Really intriguing athletic ability. Uh, you know, I, I think he, with the, the defensive back depth that the Seahawks have, I think that Ty Okada at this point has to be a little bit of a long shot to make this roster, but he's got the kind of mentality, the positional versatility that you're always looking for. And so again, another player that I'm 
very, very intrigued by. And to me, it kind of actually reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, Reed Blank- I think it was Reed Blankenship of a year ago. No, I'm sorry, not Reed Blankenship, but the, um, oh, the, the safety from Virginia that actually wound up making this, the team. Um, uh, Joey Blunt. Exactly. Thank you, Joey Blunt, that, uh, you know, he's got some playmaking ability that is obvious on tape. And, and so to me, that is one of the things that is really intriguing to me. Uh, I apologize. I mentioned Reed Blankenship. He was an undrafted free agent that made the Philadelphia Eagles roster a year ago, similar to Joey Blunt, undrafted free agent for University, uh, for University of Virginia, making Seattle's roster. Tyler Cotta is a player that I'm I'm really intrigued about. Um, and again, I, I'm I think that Seattle has a number of undrafted free agents. We talked about this earlier in the year that I think it could make this training camp a fascinating one. We, we talked so much about Seattle's draft class. It's the undrafted rookies, Tyler Cotta being one of them, Kendall Randolph again being another one that I think could make Seattle's draft class much, much better than just the 10 players they selected. I'm glad that you mentioned the athletic metrics because that's really what popped out first to me. I believe he had a top 10 relative athletic score at the safety position for this draft class coming from Montana State. And then you look at the productivity, an interception, nine pass breakups, over 70 tackles last year. This guy comes up and hits you. He can play in the box. He's played some single high, too. So he's got some positional versatility. He's played a little bit in the slot, not something he's done extensively, but he can play there as well. And then you have that 4-4 speed. You've got the explosiveness, the really quick three-cone time as well. So he's got change of direction skills. Really, the only question for him is adapting from the FCS level to the NFL. And he just happens to be in a really good position group of safety. But as I mentioned earlier, there might be some big changes coming depending on how this year plays out at that position next year with some of the money and other things going on at that safety position Okada could be a player that they redshirt on the practice squad this year if he has a really good training camp and exhibition season. And then next year, him and Jarek Reed, you could have two guys that can play both safety positions that could be potentially competing for some snaps on defense, depending what the Seahawks decide to do at that spot. So he is a name that I'm going to have circled that I'm going to be watching closely because I do think he's one of those under-the-radar undrafted players that could make some waves for the Seahawks in the month of August. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up tomorrow, Dan Fienza of the Seahawks Forever podcast will be joining us to talk about deep sleepers to make the roster, Geno Smith's ceiling with all the weapons around him, and much more. It's going to be a jam-packed episode. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening in, and enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.